Imagine a world where if someone just has access to a smartphone or a device, which we know is are very accessible now, and they're getting more and more accessible every day, that that is also their lifeline to a world-class education. They get all the core academic material from pre-K through the core of college. They can learn at their own time and pace. They can validate that they know the material. They can then be connected to opportunity. Then we have a better world. <laughs> so why not go for that? In March 2020, students across the country shifted to an unprecedented learning model as they logged onto their computers to attend classes on Zoom, forcing educators to quickly rethink how to effectively teach students in this new paradigm. As our education institutions work to shift their models, the long-standing flaws and inequities in our system were put on full display. Now, two years later, we're working to fully understand the impacts of this disruption to student learning. What has happened to our students over the past two years? What have we learned from this experience? And what changes are necessary in order to prepare today's students to succeed in this fast-changing world? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we will be talking with education advocates, researchers, and change agents who are working to rethink our education system and provide better opportunities and outcomes for all students. Today, I'm joined by Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy and one of the most well-known education innovators in the world, to talk about his groundbreaking work in providing a free, world-class education to anyone, anywhere. Sal, it's very nice to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about a lot of things, but you at this point, you know, back in 2008, you started Khan Academy, but now you have Schoolhouse.World, you have the Khan Lab School, and you've created Khan World School, which just launched. Your first class is enrolled and halfway through their first year. That's right. So I want to talk about how all of those things are going, but it made me wonder, given that you've got physical school, big virtual school, who needs a different school from the school that they have today? As you just think about it in macro, here in the United States, around the world, what percentage of the population needs a different school? I think nearly everyone could benefit from a different way of learning, whether that is their existing school changes a bit or they go to another one. And a lot of the principles that I've been a little bit of the Pied Piper for is this idea that students should be able to master things. And all that means, you know, mastery learning sounds fancy. All it means is that you always have the opportunity incentive to improve your learning. And it's as simple as in a traditional system, kids have some lecture and homework, then they take a test. If you get a 70 or 80% of the test, or even if you fail that test, the class will move on to the next concept, even though that concept's probably going to build on that gap that the assessments just showed that you have. And that keeps happening. And that's why so many students have, especially in in math courses, but I would say in almost all courses, uh, eventually hit a wall when they get to algebra or they get to calculus. The majority of students in the U.S., when they go to four-year or two-year college, don't even place into college algebra. So mastery learning gets enforced the first time in their life when they're about to go to college. And they say, wait a second, you're not even ready to learn algebra. College algebra is really just ninth or 10th grade math. It should have been done. And Instead of ninth or 10th grade people saying, hey, let's make sure you know the prerequisites. Now all of a sudden the colleges are making you do middle school math. So the thing that everyone could benefit from is can you give everyone the opportunity incentive 
to fill in their gaps? Can you let them learn at their own time and pace? Can the classroom environment become less passive and more active? We all know you learn when you actually do things and you try things and you sometimes fail and failure shouldn't be stigmatized and you pick yourself up and you you learn from those failures. If we can adapt existing schools to go in that direction, and I know a lot of educators want to go there if we can kind of release some of the constraints around them. But we also know that there's opportunities, and this is why I started a, a physical school here in Mountain View where my kids go. This is why we started the, the World School, which anyone could go to, but it's, it's free for anyone in Arizona because it's also an Arizona charter school, is to see what you can do with the school if you really triple down, quadruple down on these ideas because we do see other things happening because if students are able to learn more that way, their curiosity isn't squashed, they have more time for their passions, and they're learning more faster and then, you know, things like schoolhouse.world is just another layer of support on, you know, Khan Academy allows the personalization, the mastery, but we know the human support's important. Ideally, you get that from your school or your classroom, but then if you don't, you can also get that from schoolhouse.world with free tutoring. Right. So, and I guess there's two things that you make me think of there then. Mastery learning, you've talked about it for a very long time, and I think it probably makes sense to most educators. When you talk to them, it probably makes sense to most students when you talk to them. What is keeping us from just moving to an academic methodology where public schools, private schools are using mastery learning? Is it the end game, like the SATs and the ICs and the way that we do admissions into college, that there's just no way for everybody to be at the same place unless we leave a bunch of kids behind? I would say that, you know, the traditional exams or gateways to get into college or jobs actually yeah. are very much mastery or competency based, your AP exams, your IBs, your SATs, ACTs. I think there is a disconnect. Look, I, I, our current school system was developed during the Industrial Revolution, during the Victorian era, where folks said, all right, we're going to do something which was, in all fairness, very, very forward thinking, which is let's give everyone school. That wasn't the case for most of human history. So they said, let's give everyone school. It's the industrial revolution. But how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to do it the same way we run the trains, the same way that we operate the factories in the industrial revolution, batch things together, have a very well-defined process, which we now call curricula. And you know, we have these checkpoints. And in those checkpoints, some kids are going to get it. Some kids aren't. The kids that aren't, well, the, the assembly line can't be slowed down. Let's just keep it going forward. And, you know, the kids that start to really not get it, well, you know, that those are going to be sorted into certain careers while the kids that the paint stuck, so to speak, yeah. well, they're, they're going to be able to go into the knowledge economy. That's not an acceptable thing anymore, but we've just had the inertia of the system. So when you talk about the constraints today... And, you know, we face these when we do Con Lab School and Con World School is that you have all sorts of regulation. Like if you look at any state college system, they'll say that the student needs three years of math, three years of English. Mm -hmm. They're not saying the student needs to understand algebra. They're not saying the student needs to be able to write at a freshman college level. I think it's a very easy change. If you changed all of these requirements to a competency requirement that like, like, I don't care if it takes you two weeks or 20 years, just learn algebra. I don't care if it takes you two weeks or 20 years, you know, learn to write, then that becomes much more in line with this type of a uh, framework. That's what the colleges care about. That's what employers care about is just, do you know it or do you not know it? Not how long you sat in a seat. So now we, we kind of just play the game of like, okay, let's just have the kids sit in the chair and we'll let the curriculum wash over them for, for three or four years. And then we know where we're ending up 70 or 80%, even though they took classes called algebra geometry, algebra two, some of them even took pre-calculus and calculus, 80%, 70%, 
the college are saying, you're not even ready to learn algebra yet. What are you doing the last six or seven years? And so, so we know it's broken. So how does that play out the lab school? Did you start it because you had kids who were about to start school or what, what was the impetus for starting the lab school? If I'm honest, that was definitely part of it. Khan Academy really got on a lot of folks' radar in about 2010, 2011. 2011, I wrote a book, The One World Schoolhouse. The, the first third of the book was, how did the education system get to where we are? And you know, I just kind of gave a summary of it. The middle third was, how did I get into this? And you know, me tutoring my cousins, leading to Khan Academy, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last third is, given tools like Khan Academy and the world that we are entering into and what's just fair, what should the education system look like? And that's where I talk about, you know, personalization, mastery learning, transcript of the future, competency learning, students being able to pursue their passions. School is not being where you hold kids captive, but it's really their base of operations that students should be able to teach each other, that class time should, you should have zero lecture. It should all be active. And, you know, I know it's, it's easy to write about things. It's a whole other thing to implement it. And this was exactly at the same time that my oldest child was going to be of kindergarten age. And I said, how hypocritical would it be if I'm giving all these speeches and writing about mastery learning and my kid doesn't get it? And, and frankly, I selfishly wanted my own child to have that experience. And now, you know, we have three kids and now they're all part of the school and we see it's bearing fruit. The kids at KLS on math, especially they anchor very much on Khan Academy, but it's not just, it's not like some Vulcan or Borg school where they're just on a computer all day. They're working, they do some of their work on Khan Academy for sure. Let's say it's about 30 minutes a day, but even that's very social. They're able to help each other. The teacher's walking around using data to actually inform how to work with kids based on where they are. They can also do breakouts with the students to do more some you know deeper collaborative problem solving. And once you get into middle school, high school, in order to get the highest level of mastery, the students actually certify themselves on Schoolhouse where they actually take a Khan Academy assessment while it records their face and screen and they have to explain their reasoning out loud. And then that thing gets peer reviewed. And then that begins their journey to become a tutor of other people around the world. And these students, we I just put a, a LinkedIn post yesterday. We just got some data that uh, about two thirds of our students are getting on average about 1.6 to 1.7 grade levels per year. Another, almost a third of our students are getting more than two grade levels a year. And the quote laggards, about 5%. So the, the quote, the, in terms of growth, the bottom 5% of our students are only getting 1.5 grade levels per year. So this is as compared to when you say grade levels, that would be what, a, what constitutes a grade level in a traditional American school? Exactly right. And what's interesting is the public data on what's happening in public schools is that kids are not, the teachers are trying to cover a grade level, but what's actually being measured by standardized test scores is that students are getting about 0.7 grade levels per year, which completely gels with the data I just told you about college remediation, because after 12 years of school, most kids are operating at a seventh grade level. Wow, that's so wild. And, so, and I would imagine summer and summer melt plays into that too. Absolutely. You know, right. one, one of the things that we, we did, we, you know, when you start your own school, you can challenge even the calendar. So we spread out the calendar over the year so you don't have two, three months to just atrophy. Well, this, okay, this is so interesting. So let, let me just go sidebar for a second. The pandemic and causing a bunch of learning loss, are people using your products to, if, if it has that big a jump in terms of advancing kids in, in math, are schools using that to help solve the learning loss problem? Yes and no. We have on the order of 15, 20 million folks coming to our site every month, and half of those are what we call teacher-directed. So there are hundreds of thousands of teachers who are getting their students to use Khan Academy. 
with that said, you know, it isn't mainstream. If you were to just drop into a, a random American classroom, it's likely that the students or the teachers have used us maybe for a little bit of help here, or there, but not use us in a consistent way. And so that's why we've created something we call our district offering, where we go to districts. We're like, look, we want, look at our, we have 50 plus efficacy studies that all show the same thing. If students, places like Khan World School and Khan Lab School, the students are able to do 30, 40 minutes a day. But our efficacy studies show that if students are able to put in even 30 to 40 minutes a week, that they're growing 30, 40, 50% more than expected. And so the district said, okay, then you need to give us support, training, et cetera, et cetera. So we've, we've gone down that road. We are doing that with school districts. And we just, we had a study come out uh, during, it, it was the 2020 to 2021 school year. So right in the heart of the pandemic. And this was a study with 200,000 students in mainstream public schools. The one, the classrooms where the students got to, dosage got to the level of engagement of this roughly 18 hours over a year. So about 30 to 60 minutes a week. Yeah. Those students, the eighth graders, for example, they grew 40% faster than pre-pandemic norms, while the students who weren't doing that were shrinking by 15% relative to pre-pandemic norms. So they were growing almost 60, 70% faster just off of 30, 60 minutes. And a lot of folks are like, is this magical? And it's not, because if you really were to sit with a stopwatch and observe a student over the course of a week in a traditional math class, if you look at the number of actual problems they do that's actually at their learning edge that they actually should work on, that they actually get feedback on and then get to reflect on that feedback and do it again, it's almost zero. And so if you're able to get even 30 to 60 minutes where you're getting personalized practice, you know, kind of if you're doing a sport like weak point training, and getting imagine trying to become a better free throw shooter if you didn't know whether you made the free throws until two weeks later when you took a test. <laughs> and at that point, when you realize you're only a 30% free throw shooter, the whole class moves on to three points or goes on to dribbling or ball handling or whatever else. So we know it can work not just in a con lab school or con world school type environment. It is working in mainstream, inner city, public schools. But the key is we've got to make it work for the teacher so that we can squeeze it in 30 to 60 minutes a week, which isn't a ton, you know, between yeah. about five hours of class time a week. And in many cases, two and a half to five hours of homework a week, there's, there's 10 hours. So we're asking for only five to 10% of that to dramatically accelerate students. You would think they would be able to squeeze it in too. I mean, it, it's not like you're doing something, you're not asking them to squeeze in something that's outside of curriculum. Like this is straight in line with the math curriculum or, or whatever curriculum they're working on. That's exactly right. But, yeah. you know, this goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. And and I definitely have deep empathy for the teachers here because the teachers will tell you, yeah, I have kids in my class that are two, three grade levels behind. But look, all I can do with this class of 30, unless I have some help, is just march through the curriculum. And so right. they're covering a standard a day. And so it's kind of scary for them to say, well, let me take another hour to do this mastery learning stuff where some of the kids might be working on something that's maybe a prerequisite. Well, and it's also sometimes a little daunting if some of the kids are moving ahead. In a lot yeah. of classes, we see about a third, a third, a third. A third of the kids are actually running forward and anywhere. People have stereotypes about, oh, will that happen in a in an inner city under-resourced school? Yes, it will. About a third, a third of the kids, if you give them the opportunity, are going to race ahead. About a third of the kids are going to be roughly operating at grade level. And about a third of the kids are going to need to fill in some gaps. But once again, by filling in those gaps now, they're not going to fall into this college remediation trap if they decide to go to college. So it make me think about Khan Lab School and the way you described how the teachers work in that school and what you're suggesting would equal out to something that was much more focused on mastery. 
it feels like it requires a different kind of teacher training than traditional teacher training today. Have you looked at that? Do you have point, a point of view on that? And it feels like that's a significant thing that needs to change in order to move forward with some of this. Yes, you're probably right. Is con teacher training coming out next? Did I just leapfrog yeah. into your announcement for 2024? <laughs> some version of that. You know, I, I, I've given talks to tens of thousands of teachers at conferences and things, and they, you know, they, they they believe what I've just said about mastery learning and kids' gaps in their learning. You know, now people say unfinished learning, but it's all the yeah. same thing. Yeah. It's gaps. They see it. I mean, they live it every day. They love what we're talking about, but then when they go back to their classroom, and it is a very lonely experience, you kind of like, well, oh boy, you know, that Sal guy said all this fancy stuff, and Khan Academy seems usable, but boy, let me just you know, go back to what I know. And so, so that's what happened. So what we are working on, and we are talking to school districts, because school districts have said exactly what you said. And teachers have said, hey, just I, I need more training. I need support. We're trying to make our product as streamlined, as easy to use, and time-saving as possible for teachers. But we are doing things like, well, well what's really interesting is now this generation of teachers, a lot of them grew up with Khan Academy. So yeah. on one level, they use Khan Academy in a personalized way to learn. So that's that's good. And honestly, a lot of those teachers are the ones to really lean in on it yeah. now when they're in the classroom. Another thing that we hear is that, you know, a lot of teachers, especially if you're an elementary school teacher and you're a generalist, you teach all subjects, some of them aren't super confident about their math. And so that's where Khan Academy, they're, they're already using Khan Academy in many cases to bone up on their own math. Mm. But we, we think there uh, is an opportunity to create kind of adult versions of the courses that teachers could use that can also give tips about, okay, and this is how you can use it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I'm hoping, you know, to, to foreshadow, which you've just foreshadowed as well. Yeah. Probably in the 2024 timeframe that we do have kind of a teacher resources, teacher training, teacher guides. We do teacher training already in the district setting on how to use it, et cetera, et cetera. So we do do that, but we're going to do more and more over the next couple of years. So how do you and your organization, do you overlap with government much at all, a lot, you know, and folks who are thinking about educating America. I think about, first of all, like ESSER funding kept running through my brain as because there were not a lot of requirements put around this massive amount of money that we put out into the school districts after the pandemic to solve for these things that were either caused by or proliferated by the pandemic. How do you how do you think about one that big tranche of money or several tranches of money? And then two, how much do you interact with them? And are they bought into your thinking? Are people thinking about this kind of transformation? It's interesting. I, I think historically as an organization, we've been very naive to government funding and the whole RFP process, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're starting to try to build some muscles there. You know, as individual actors, whether you consider the government the president, and regardless of party, to Congress people, you know, I've I've spoken to both the House Republican Caucus and the House Democratic Caucus, and you know, I asked the audience, how many of you have used Khan Academy with your kids? In both cases, it was over half used it with their own kids or used it themselves. They both viewed it as something that was consistent with their party platform, which you know, there's not a lot that that Good. sits in that, that that intersection of the Venn diagram. But yeah, you know, on the on the right, folks say, look, this is all about giving people the opportunity to pick themselves up from their bootstraps and own their own learning and have agency and have an entrepreneurial mindset towards their own journey. On the left, people say this is all about equity. This is giving everyone access to free world-class education. So there's a lot of, you know, every governor we talk to, every congressperson, every superintendent, not only do they get behind the mission, but they usually have a story from their own family of how we've helped them in some way. I think what 
the disconnect, you know, I I've had very open conversations with like a superintendent who said like, oh yeah, we love Khan Academy. And then I was like, well, why aren't you using it throughout your district? And they're like, oh, well, we already paid for some other product last year <laughs> through some RFP process. And I was like, would you use that with your kid? And I was like, no, I, I we use Khan Academy. Why would I use that? <laughs> and it's yeah. like this, you know, it's a sunk cost fallacy. It's kind of the bureaucracy of like, you know, I think one of the reasons why I originally made Khan Academy not-for-profit is I think education and probably healthcare are the two parts of, I'm I'm a diehard capitalist, but like capitalism works when markets work and markets work when the decision makers, the payers and the beneficiaries are kind of the same people or have their interests aligned at least. And I think in education and healthcare, the payer, the decision maker, the beneficiary, all three different people with not always convergent incentives. I, I think traditional publishing companies and, and I, you know, there's a lot of good people at, at these places and they yeah. do a lot of good things, but traditional ed tech or even for-profit ed tech in many cases, they quickly learn that the game you have to play is how do you check box for the RFP process? And so they invest a ton in that and they probably underinvest in the product because yeah. that's where the incentive structure is. We've kind of come naive, like, oh, shucks, like, you know, we're this non-for-profit. We got, you know, direct to consumer roots and who we are. So we've always been around like what is going to be engaging and effective for learners and educators and parents. And we are only now trying to gain some of this like street smarts around the bureaucracy, around navigating RFPs. And there's a lot of well-intentioned laws in place around privacy and data security and et cetera. But what, it, what they do create a lot of bureaucracy that you almost need a whole other organization to be able to navigate it. Totally. I didn't understand it at all when we started the foundation because I came out of the for-profit world. And when we worked with the school district and city to help them, you know, just build kitchens and provide better choices to kids around food, we ran into the same thing. Like you just, you have to get, you really have to understand how purchasing happens within government entities in order to have the effect that you want. And you know, it's probably all set up for a reason, but it's you ha- it's a know-how I didn't have before we went through all of that. Happy to share with you offline. Yeah, sure <laughs> we can learn. What we learned. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I want to talk about your, about your mission, which is very big, free world-class education to anyone, anywhere. And why? Why was that that mission? Were, did you, were you just kind of like, I'm going to go big or go home? This is actually what I want to happen. How did it happen that you wrote that, like that that became your mission? And I'm sure you played around with that over the years. And so what do you want to do? Like, what did, what did that mean to you at the time? And what do you want to do now? And is it, you know, how do you, how do you think about it? Because it's, I think in a, in a way, it's the most beautiful mission I've ever heard. Yeah, I no, appreciate that. You know, it was back, I, I was actually in the same closet where I am right now. <laughs> and and uh, it's a nice closet. I have a window. It's very nice. Yeah, it's nice. The um, bookshelf, clearly. I, I filed for not-for-profit status in early 2008. And, the you know, the IRS has this, you know, and I, I was naive. I, I had never worked at a not-for-profit. I had yeah. never created a not-for-profit. And they had this line in the form where, like, what's your mission? And yeah. Like, oh, I think of something. And going into that, you know, this started as a tutoring project from my cousins back in 2004, 2005. I started making software for them. That's what we called Khan Academy. 2006, I started making videos. All this stuff just happened to be public for anyone to use. And, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, I started getting a lot of letters from folks all over the world saying how it was helping them, how it was empowering their children, how it was giving them confidence to go back to school or go into a career. And I really felt that this should be a bit of an institution for the world. And it was delusional. I was one guy operating out of a walk-in closet. Although even at that point, I used to have a little back of the envelope calculation. Even back in 2007 on a 
monthly basis, we were reaching more folks than Harvard reaches in, you know, I think in the in the last century or some, I forgot what the exact number That's was, but it was something like that. Yeah. And wow. now on a daily basis, we reach more than Harvard has in, in its history. And I'm not trying to create an equivalence. There are things that Harvard does that we don't do, et cetera, et cetera. But, sure. you know, even then the scale was very large. I read a lot of science fiction books and I've always said, you know, there's things like the Foundation series where, where, the, where the protagonist collects all of the world's, the, the galaxy's knowledge at that time and puts it at the periphery to prevent a dark ages or to shorten a dark ages. Uh, and I was like, why? well, maybe Khan Academy could be that an institution for this next wave of humanity. So I, I got inspired by that type of thing. And I was like, you know, why not swing for the fences? And it did feel not so delusional. And it feels even less delusional now that imagine a world where if someone just has access to a smartphone or a device, which we know is are very accessible now, and they're getting more and more accessible every day, that that is also their lifeline to a world-class education. They get all the core academic material from pre-K through the core of college, they can learn at their own time and pace, they can validate that they know the material, they can then be connected to opportunity, then we have a better world. We <laughs> so do why have not a better go world. for that? Yeah, that it's more beautiful than I even, than it even was when I read it. So because you brought up the future and you're based in technology, and, and I don't know if you think so, it feels to me like it's, it's really great that you're in Silicon Valley. You know, with AI coming now quickly at us, it you know, in ways that it will impact our, our lives. How do you think about AI? Are you using it right now in, in, and in what ways? And how do you think about what the future of education, like play forward 10 years? Do things start to shift pretty rapidly because of this? It's going to force a paradigm shift, I would think. Not just 10 years, 10 days. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's, happening, true. it's true. happening fast. It's happening fast. The genie's out of the bottle. So I think, you know, sticking one's head in the sand and just saying, I hope it goes away is not a strategy. We've actually you know, been looking at this very seriously. And there's a lot of really interesting things that I'm hoping that we're going to be able to do, surprisingly good things that we're going to be able to do in the next, let's call it year or so. But in terms of even the chat GPT debate, KLS and KWS are not going to ban chat GPT. What we're going to say is, if we really want to see how you write, like you're writing, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do that in real time. We'll proctor it. We'll, we'll give you three hours and just write. Right. <laughs> and, exactly. And what we also know is that in your future as an adult, you are absolutely going to use not just chat GPT, you're going to use whatever, you know, four generations forward of chat GPT is going to be. Right. And you're going to absolutely use that when you write your white papers or when you write your proposals, when you write emails, it's going to be used. And so Part of the education's role is to prepare you for the world that you're going to be living in. The tool shouldn't be banned. It should be embraced. Right. And I've run some experiments. And these large language models can actually allow us to think about humanities in ways that we couldn't do before in a scalable way. The gold standard would be, what if a student could write his or her story right next to J.K. Rowling? And J.K. Rowling is coaching them, and they're writing it together. This is possible now. What if you could talk to one of the characters? This is possible now. What if everyone could have a Socratic dialogue about a topic that teaches them? This is possible now. So I think there's a lot to be excited about. And I think, you know, some of the disruption that is being caused by chat GPT can easily be adapted around because, and, and there's so many other benefits. And, I, and I'm just scratching the surface. I could, I could go on for hours about this. Okay. Now I can imagine you would. I wish I could talk to you for hours about it. Do you think that at some point then you have AI mentors on your mentoring program? Like, do you see ways in which AI just becomes so intertwined with Khan Academy? 
Yeah, I absolutely could see that. <laughs> Simple answer. You know, but we're going to be thoughtful and careful about it. Like, Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, we know these these tools are imperfect. We know they have hallucinations. They can make up facts. Ironically, the one place that they're really bad right now is in math. But a lot of what Khan Academy's done is so far is take, if it was 1970, and if a student is suitably motivated, like super motivated, they could go to the library, check out some books and learn a ton. Now, a very small percentage of people could have done that, but it, it was possible. Now, Khan Academy has lowered the activation energy. It's as close as your cell phone, it's videos, it's interactive exercises, immediate feedback, it's more gamified. It's much easier to learn from than a textbook. Right. But we still know, uh, to our earlier conversation, that not everyone will naturally gravitate. They need human support. They need motivation. And I actually think the human support will always be a very important element of it. But if on top of that, you had an AI saying, hey, good job. Let's try this now. Or like, look, it looks like you're having a bad day. Have you thought about this? Or, hey, here's a little hint. That could fill in a really interesting gap with, if, if a human isn't available. Once again, I don't think it replaces the human. Yeah. It moves the human even higher up the value chain. And it also provides a stopgap when the human isn't there. I, I agree with that. So Con World School. So talk to me about that. What did was that started because you were having conversation with Arizona State and they needed, you know, some sort of extended or virtual learning, or was this something you wanted to explore and you found them as a partner? And does it have anything to do also with we're spending a lot of time looking at early college? And so it, it is a high school platform, correct? But talk can you talk a little bit about, you know, the partnership with a college and, and what it all means? Yeah, what happened was the founding vision behind KLS was always, this, this has got to be more than just another school in Silicon Valley. It's got to show that there's a model that can be replicated and scaled well beyond Silicon Valley. Eventually, and this is a longer game than even Khan Academy's playing, eventually, hopefully becoming mainstream model yeah. that takes on the Prussian model that, that is now mainstream. And yeah. KLS, Khan Lab School, is now in its eighth year. It's had two graduating classes. We have our third cohort of seniors this year. Wow. And it's a lab school. We're constantly iterating, constantly working on stuff. But for the most part, it's working. The kids are mastering more material than is typical. Yeah. And they are healthier and happier. And they're pursuing their passions. And they're doing great on, not that this is the end all and be all, but the stuff that a lot of people index on, things like standardized tests and college admissions, and even more success in college, they're doing great. Yeah. And so yeah. we're like, you know, this is the time that we need to start scaling it. So we, we we were thinking, let's just start an online high school. That was our original thinking. And I started asking around and Michael Horn, who's you know well-known in ed reform circles, said, you know, yeah. you should talk to Amy McGrath, who runs ASU Prep, which is their online high school. We were connected just as a, you know, just to learn. And, you know, Amy immediately was like, oh, you know, this this is... We've always, I've always wanted to do this. This is so much what we believe. And ASU prep is great. And I believe it's great. And she believes it's great. But she's like, it still is more traditional classes. But, you know, to be able to do mastery, to be able to do personalization and this KLS model. And, and it was a little bit, you know, it was like a pedagogical flirtation or, or rom-com or something. Like by the end of the, by the end of the call, I was like, do you want to do this together? And then she was like, I never thought you would ask. And then, you know, and, 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 I'm like, you know, wow, this would be really incredible because, you know, uh, ASU Prep uh, online, they have 10,000, uh, 40,000 students in some way, shape or form. So they figured out scale. And obviously wow. ASU is well known as a highly innovative university. Yeah. You know, they have a statewide charter in the state of Arizona. And so, so what if we created, it's like, a, it, and I think this is the first of its kind where anyone in Arizona, you leverage the statewide charter, they go for free. And then, but it's also available to anyone else in the world. And they, you know, it's a low cost private school for anyone else in the world. And what does it cost? Get, 
for anyone else in the world? It costs $10,000 for anyone okay. else. In the world. Yeah. And, and that's roughly what the Arizona charter covers. So, yeah. so that's how we do it. And then, you know, we're working on getting more state charters so that state by state, uh, we're going to be able to get more people into the kind of being able to go for free. But even ideally, going back to the mission statement, free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. What's neat is, you know, Khan Academy, schoolhouse.world are offering pieces of a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere today. And I hope we can offer more and more pieces. What's exciting about Khan World School is now we can actually say, there is a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon to a state near you. Coming to a state, because it, it really is, I think, and you know, we already have evidence that even you know, at Conroe School, the kids are learning, growing much faster. I, I, I don't want to publish really? it just yet, but oh, much faster than is typical. They're enjoying it. We have a daily seminar. We've been working with UChicago on constructing these daily seminars where these kids go into really interesting conversations about like, should we modify the human genome using CRISPR? Is social media be regulated? You know, these really like the, the questions you sh everyone is talking about and yeah. you can learn so much about, but it's not part of traditional high school curricula. So the kids are super engaged. And, you know, I, I am looking at things like, what if you could use things like chat GPT to on top of that, like you're, they're doing their asynchronous work on Khan Academy. We have our live daily seminar, but what if on top of that, you had a Asynchronous daily Socratic dialogue with Chat GPT. Oh man, that's like cool. you know we, we can really push the envelope. So, but but what's exciting is it's only fifty students right now. Yeah, but it can scale to fifty thousand, and I think it will over the next five ten years. How do you think about and how do you know parents who are sending their kids up for this, kids who are entering this? How do they think? Where do they get their their social and you know their activities and all of those sorts of things? What's like a day in the life of someone who's attending school virtually? I think that is a, a very important question because I think there's, I think there's two ways to think about it. There's people who are going to attend virtual school one way or the other. Like mm -hmm. they're they could be homeschooled, they could be they're athletes. They, they're athletes, yeah. child actors, right. you know, or maybe you know, God forbid, they're in the hospital or they're in a very rural place and they need to do online. And so here, just the fact that you have a daily like it's much more synchronous. We have synchronous pieces than your traditional online school. We definitely think. Five hours on Zoom is a bad idea. And that's why online school during the pandemic, most people hated it. Yeah. And then even that five hours was not particularly interactive. It was still lectures. So, right. you know, here the students are only doing synchronous Zoom for one to two hours a day, which is what I think is manageable. And when they're doing it, they're conversations like you and I are having versus trying to listen to a, a lecture. Mm. So they have that aspect of community building that happens as part of the school. Then the students are also on their learning management system and we leverage Slack and, you know, they're, they're kind of working alongside each other throughout the day. And ideally, if there's a critical mass, they are doing meetups and connecting and they're able to do stuff. And a lot of the kids are part of club sports and other extracurricular activities that okay. they can plug to plug into in, in, in their community. So in the teachers for that, like as you scale, let's say you're, you're at a thousand kids and in a few years, 10,000 kids, what's the ratio of scale for teachers to students in that sort of scenario? Right now, I would say we, you know, we, we've definitely, we're investing right now when we're in this growth stage and we're developing the model and the curriculum. So with those 50 students, we have five full-time guides, you know, faculty yep. members, and we guides, have other yeah. adults that are also there. When we get to a steady state, it's going to be on the order of like a, you know, a, a 30 to one actual ratio. But what's interesting about that, even, but it's not that you're going to have, like our seminars only have 15 students in them because 
the teacher's not on all day with the same group and the students aren't on all day with that cohort. And then the other thing that that I've always been fascinated by, by the back of the envelope calculation of like, if you take a, a school district that spends a lot, New York City Public School spends $40,000 per student per year. Right. They have a 25 to one student to teacher ratio. So 25 times $40,000 means there's a million dollars per classroom. Right. And they're definitely not paying the teacher a million dollars. So, <laughs> so uh, and even if you take a, a, a school a system that pays less, you know, uh, an Arizona, Louisiana, that's closer to about $10,000 per student per year. That means in a classroom of 25 or 30, there's 250,000 to $300,000 per classroom. Once again, the teachers, even the fully loaded costs with the pension and the benefits is nowhere close to that. At the higher end, it might be half of that if they're paying their teachers well. And so one of the things that we try to do at Con Lab School and Con World School, especially as you get some scale. You need some overhead to just run the program, but try to make it as efficient as possible so that as much of the resources as possible are not going to the bureaucracy, but are going right. to the actual student experience with the faculty. And the other thing we try to do, and this isn't like a cost-cutting measure, this is what I think is actually good for students, is giving them as much responsibility as possible. Like there's jobs that right now some adults might be doing, but like, well, well, why couldn't the kids run the social media for the school? Totally. Why couldn't the kids do this or do that? And we have this for several years now. We have students at Con Lab School who are actual full faculty members. We have a student right now, Jay Bond, who is teaching multivariable calculus. He is the teacher of record for multivariable calculus. So, I mean, there's two interesting things going on there. Most schools don't offer multivariable calculus. And if they do, it isn't being taught by a 17-year-old. Yeah. Both of those things are happening. That's amazing. Do you think that as technology gets better, VR and things like that, this will just get better and better because the environment will be almost healthier? You know, I feel like a little bit these flat screens and the light and everything that we look at all day long, it feels like all of that is going to change and it's going to, technology will become more comfortable to us as humans. And I would imagine that only makes everything that you're talking about easier and better. Because you had mentioned health, like your kids at Con Lab you said that, you know, they're doing very well. But what struck me is you also said they're happy and healthy. And that's not what's happening in America right now. And so I find that very interesting. Yeah, I don't want to jinx it. But yeah, I think you give anyone more agency over their learning. There's a lot of adversarial relationships that ha- that the teachers don't want it, but it kind of forms in traditional high schools. But in this school where the teachers are on your side, they're trying to just help you get to mastery. They're not going to give you a C and they say too bad. They'll say you're approaching mastery, which is the equivalent mm. of, a, of a B or whatever. So they'll evaluate you with very high standards, but they're like, but let's talk about what we can do to get you to mastery, right? So it's like more like a coach. A coach doesn't say, oh, you suck at free throws too bad. You're going to have trouble getting into college. They're going to say, let's keep <laughs> yeah. working on the free throws. So I think that helps. The school is very collaborative. These kids, if you visit the school, you're going to see mostly kids talking to each other. They're not told not to talk to each other. They're told to talk to each other, to support each other. We say everyone a student, everyone a teacher. So there's that collaborative, supportive nature. And you know, as soon as grades don't become the, like we measure, but when they, it's not like one time, the people's stress level goes down. They're more willing to help other people. They're more willing to mentor other people. And they have more time for doing their passions. And so that all mm-hmm. leads to them being I believe healthier and happier. I don't want to jinx it. I'm sure, you know, like every school will face issues, but like it's, and it's a smaller school. So we benefit from that as well. No, that's true. It feels like there's a little bit of Montessori in you. Were you a Montessori kid? 
I was not, but you know, the more I learned about Montessori and my my kids went to preschools that were flavors of Montessori. Yeah. And I have called Khan Lab School kind of Montessori 2.0. Yeah. And you know, Maria Montessori died before she really was able to implement a full high school and middle school model. Yes. Right. And you know, so a lot of people just read the tea leaves about being through in nature, and I, which I believe strongly as well. Totally. To make Montessori middle schools and high schools. And Maria Montessori didn't say no technology. I actually think she would be very much in favor of leveraging technology intelligently to unlock student experiences, giving them agency, which is what Montessori, letting them explore the world and the, the teachers are there to help guide them. They're on the side, not telling the students what to do. And going back to health, one of the things that I've enjoyed in the pandemic, and I almost feel guilty because obviously horrible things are going on in the world, is I've started doing a lot of my conference calls. I said, hey, can I turn the camera off? And I go for walks. And imagine yeah. if you could do that in school. Imagine if you could participate in school while you're going on a hike. That's kind of a cool thing. And, you know, I, we're encouraging kids to do that at the world school. And, you know, I, I try to push the faculty and team at Con Lab School, like we live in Northern California, like we should be outside most of the time. And we are outside a lot of the time. But yeah. that's, that also, I think, adds to that health. That's very, that's very Montessori. So if they said we want to use AI to replicate you, would you let them? Because it feels like we should. <laughs> I, you know, I've always said, and I tell this to the team at Khan Academy, like as a not-for-profit, yeah, it's, it's human nature to sometimes get competitive and it's human nature to sometimes want us to be the one that solves the problem. And, you know, and I think we're in a good position to do, to solve some many important problems. But if someone or something else can do a better job at it, we should say, great. Or just spread it, Saul. Just or like, every, it. yeah, it's just really so beautiful. Simple answer is, simple answer is yes. Not only would I not fight that, I would very much embrace that. I love it. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with, to talk with me today. I could, we could I'd go for a long time talking with you about this. It's very inspirational. Everything that you're doing, the things that you say, the things that you're thinking about, the things that you've brought into the world. So thank you very much for our time today. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sal Khan. Sal's work is changing the face of education in this country, and the model he has created has the potential to transform the way students learn for generations to come. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.